0: Anytime I'm uncomfortable or unhappy or angry, I think, what can I get curious about here? Because then things shift. And sometimes it's curious about my own reaction, but much more often it's curiosity about the thing that is allegedly distressing me. If you think about what it is to be human is for us to think And for us to think means that we have a lot of thoughts that are really interesting and useful, and we have a whole bunch of thoughts that are really useless and not interesting at all. And some of them occupy our minds way more than they need to. And curiosity is the gateway to joy, happiness, learning, discovery. So whenever I am in pain of any kind, that's sort of become my go-to question.
1: In part two, we continue where we left off in part one, as Lorna continues to tell the story of her transformational journey, leading her to becoming a B Corp evangelist. She unpacks the steps companies should take to start their journey to becoming B Corp certified, the importance of having a visionary CEO, engaging and empowering youthful activists to lead the transformation process, and the necessity of bypassing senior and mid-level management. We talk about the practical leverage of bottom-up and outside-in methodologies, inviting an inclusive range of expert advisors and investors to accelerate the process of change and overcoming short-termism, achieving triple bottom line and the role of big banks. Lorna also discusses the UN's new SDG Action Navigator tool to help businesses measure progress against the SDGs and projects forward the future structure of corporate boards that cover all the ESGs – environmental, social and governance. We then cover the need to connect with our humanity, embrace ambiguity, as Lorna explains her perspective on life being a dance of love and power. And there's a lot more as we discuss serendipity, education, diversity, divine intelligence, the joy of being human, and how Lorna uses curiosity as an antidote to pain, and her perspective on how humanity works. I hope you're inspired by the leadership values, heart, and humanity of Lorna Davis. So you came back. They set up the Public Benefit Corporation, integrated the two businesses, got B Corp Certification, and then in
0: 2018. It became apparent to me around that time that, I mean, I never had wanted to run a business in the US.
1: You were CEO of, of North America and you had an interesting title around Chief Catalyst. Chief Manifesto Catalyst, Manifesto, Catalyst. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, we when I moved back to Paris, we called we created this title Chief Manifesto Catalyst because we were trying to demonstrate that we were kind of, shifting the way the organization operated. When I came back to the U.S., I just kept that other job and added the CEO job. But I had become very passionate about this movement for other companies. And bear in mind, I'm kind of getting on now. You know, I was thinking, I don't want to work this hard the rest of my life. And so Faber and I agreed that I would, and this is interesting. He, He paid me for two years to advise him and also to, uh, advise other companies to become B Corps, which is an interesting choice for a company to make. And I think uh, one of the things that he would say if he were here, and I think many others would, including including Rosemar macaria who runs Patagonia, is the choice of who you are friends with or who you align with or who you associate with is one of the biggest and most important choices that you make as a company. By the way, I think it's the one of the biggest and most important choices you make as an individual.
1: Exactly. Many people say on other podcasts, which is you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. That's
0: absolutely right. Yeah, Yeah. I've heard this expression in in various forms and I think it's true. And so it's in all of the companies at the front end of this is interests to have other companies on the same journey with them because we all need systems change right so i've spent much of the last couple of years spending time with big companies trying to help them to move i'm now on you know some of the boards that are part of big organizations i'm on i'm on two unilever subsidiaries which are b corps because i think that the sort of viral implications of, of a... If you're a big company, and this I'm seeing this movement in a lot of places, if you're a big company and you buy a couple of, or you transform a couple of your subsidiaries into what you consider perfection to be, good, well-balanced businesses with good environmental responsibility and great human rights or great social programs, you can then use that as a model for the rest of your organization. And you can go more or less fast depending on you know your other the other things you're juggling.
1: Okay, it's interesting you make that comment. I went to the Social Goods Summit in September at 92nd Street Y and Christiana Figueres,
0: Figueres, yeah. Figueres
1: did a talk and, about rage and optimism. And the one thing I walked away with etched in my mind was she said, there's three words you have to walk away here with, which is uh, direction and then speed and scale. So the direction that companies are taking to meet the global goals and to save us from some form of climate meltdown and catastrophe, whatever scale that is. The direction is positive, but the speed and the scale of change isn't. Now, but having been at the the forefront of driving that positive change, what's your sense of optimism and around our potential for us as a business collective to implement the changes at, at speed and scale that Christiana was referring to?
0: It's a great question. And I I sometimes I feel so ill-equipped to answer it, but I'm going to give it my best shot because I think um, there's a philosophical angle and there's a pragmatic angle.
1: Yeah, well, it'd be great to hear about the pragmatic, what the steps people could take. Because the final thing I'll just add to that, I also saw Tim Wu and Amal Sharva, who runs Notel, talking after Davos about the anti-capitalist capitalist club that gathered there. And everyone's saying, yeah, we're all going after triple bottom line. But then they come back and they're back into the same old behaviours. And so how do we break these scripted behaviours that are corporate and ingrained in the systems and the relationships that organisations have? So, yeah, please reflect on the practical, but also the philosophical.
0: I'm really happy that we're doing practical because I'm not so good on the old philosophical stuff. Well, we
1: need action, so let's let's, let's just focus on the practical. So,
0: I think I think there are a couple of things. First of all, at an individual level, uh, Glennon Doyle is one of my favourite people who writes um, and and has you know uh, a good podcast and so good you know social media presence. Says that the place of action is where your heart breaks. So, at a personal level, wherever your heart breaks is the place that you should be spending your time and energy. And we all have a heartbreak at different places. And I, you, I love this phrase because I do think it's an emotional choice. I don't think you can kind of logic your way into this. If you're totally passionate about veganism, that's your point of action. If you're totally passionate about legal reform in the, you know, the justice system, that's your plan of a, place of action. My Place of action is business because that's where I come from. And it's also the way humans operate in business, more specifically. And what I'm seeing working pretty well from what I'm from all of the bits and pieces that I'm putting together is most companies go inside and down. So, you know, you'd get an old-fashioned company that is interested in. The company itself, and you've got some big boss who talks, and it allegedly trickles down. My view is that this journey is outside, and from the bottom up, and this is what I, this is why I think this, and what I mean by this. So, what I started to notice in all of the companies that I was speaking to, the people in the organisations who were the most awake. With the people who are the closest to the edges. So the people anybody who's dealing with a customer, and particularly a customer who's putting pressure on you. So for example, anybody who's dealing with Walmart was kind of awake and really cared. And anybody who's dealing with a, a factory or a farm cannot avoid the reality of some of the issues that happens in farmland and in factory land. So those people were the most awake. The people inside the organization, like HR, for example, finance, the most protected from that world out there, were the most asleep in general. What I've noticed is also that when you make deals outside of your organization, you're actually being held to account so when you can make a commitment to a customer or you make a commitment to a supplier or a supplier makes a commitment to you, you can't easily say, I don't think we're doing that anymore, which is kind of what you can do inside the company. And so if you're smart about the way you contract or negotiate or connect or commit or promise or whatever word you want to use with the people outside your organization, not only are you more likely to have friends and supporters in your journey, you're also less likely to fall off the wagon when you have a bad day, bad week, bad month, whatever it is that you have. And inviting people on the outside of your organization into your organization not only gives you scale because they also have to work. And in fact, if you look at some of the bigger companies right now, many of the bigger companies are not publicly committing to this journey but they're putting an enormous amount of pressure on their suppliers to commit to this kind of journey and then they're taking all the credit because of course they're at the point of the river where some nice clean stuff's been delivered to them. It's not bad actually. I'd like it more if they were a little bit more open about what they're doing, but it's a really powerful process to to start and focus outside. That's first step. The second thing is this journey goes from the bottom up. Anybody who's got anybody in their organization who's 35 or under If you think that you can tell them what to do from the top down and if you tell them that if you think that they don't care about this, uh, there are some exceptions. There are some people under 35 who really don't care about this. I get that. But the vast majority who are working in big companies, they really do care. And, you know, when I'm talking to people about B Corp certification, which I'm doing all of the time, my advice to them is you get the most junior person in your organization who's really passionate and put them in charge of it. Give them a little group of people to work with them and they will start to put pressure on you from the bottom up in a way that will really, really, really help you. Because what's generally happening in organizations, and I'm going to talk about systemic change in a minute, but I want to talk about organizations and big ones for the moment. In general, you have a pretty woke CEO often. And the CEO can afford to be woke because you know he or she's already got there. And they've got perspective, right? They're on the top of the hill. They might even be going to Davos. They're looking down and they're saying, I think we should change things. The layer beneath them and the layer beneath them, permafrost, man. Those ones are super, super, super resistant in general because they're close to the top, but not quite there. They've been working their whole lives here. The rules have just changed, by the way, Very, very, very upsetting when you've been spending your whole life on a set of rules and then suddenly they've changed. Comfort zone challenge. And and the young ones, of course, have got nothing to lose. So they're happy to be activists. But if you can get enough momentum from the bottom up, you're in good shape. And if the bottom up joins with the outside in, you're really in good shape. So I was talking uh, two weeks ago to a bank in the UK, very well-known bank um, with a lot of high-profile private customers. And the young woman who was speaking to me, and by the way, almost all the people who are leading this journey are young women. And they're, way, they're operating way above their pay and status grade in these kinds of transformations. That's
1: brilliant. Mm.
0: It's brilliant and it's pretty, frus- pretty frustrating. in that category as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this particular case, you've got exactly what I'm talking about here. So you've got a very woke CEO, layer of permafrost, young person reporting directly to the CEO, being told, transform this bank. And she said to me, you know, what, what do I do? And I gave her a version of this speech and I found out, I said to her, I took a punt and I said, I'm imagining that some of your private banking clients have really strong points of view in this. She chortled because clearly rich, famous people, there are going to be a few of them who say, if you don't change as a bank, I'm not going to keep my money with you. That kind of pressure from the outside, super helpful then you take a bunch of young people who say i don't want to work for a bank that doesn't have a conscience doesn't have a sense of perspective then you've got real pressure combining so th- this for me is the closest that i can get to as a sort of a practical and there are all sorts of so- sort of uh, you know spin-offs or a- add-ons to the to the point that i'm making not the least of which is the question that i raise. i don't know if you if you saw my ted talk but mm-hmm, in my yes. ted talk i talk about meetings mm-hmm. If I could talk about nothing else for the rest of my life, I would talk about meetings. Because most people in corporates are spending, you know, 80% of their time in meetings, maybe more. And I would think 80% of them are a complete waste of time. Not only do they not achieve their goal, they actually take you backwards. A meeting is nothing other than a group of humans together trying to do something, trying to make progress. And time and energy spent in meetings to make them productive, inclusive, and diverse. Uh, is time really, really well spent? So, if you combine that sort of general structural rule of thumb of bottom up and outside in versus top down and inside out, and then you add a really thoughtful program of inclusive conversations with people who can help you, you can really move your organization a lot. And by the way, when I'm talking about outsiders, I'm including investors here. And there are, there are, organizations who've been brave enough to say to investors, if you want a short-term return, we're not your people. If you want to invest in an organization that's doing the right thing as well as a good return, we are your people. So let's, you know, that's the conversation I, I think that needs to be had. So i But I'll anyone,
1: there. but surely anyone, I suppose this is my uh, not being, having this exposure that you've had, particularly to the investors, is why would and I understand that there's the pressure for investors to hit targets and expectations of particularly institutional pension funds and why there may be focus on the short term and on the quarterly results. But short termism can only go on so long it could, because if we do hit an, an, an existential crisis, there'll be no one around to benefit. So long term is the most common sense option for anyone if they sit back and and reflect on it. Why do you think that there's not a broader adoption of taking um, a triple bottom line approach and focusing on more long-term impact rather than this this perpetual short-termism?
0: I think there are a few things here. The first is that I do think that people are splitting into I'm really interested in a new set of rules and I'm interested in long-termism and I'm interested in um, you know, taking care of the planet, the people and so on, the stuff you're talking about. And I think there's another group of people who say, uh, I'm, I've tried not to swear on this podcast because I was on a podcast the other day and I kept getting bleeped out. No, I wouldn't um, you out <laughs> uh, there's another group of investors that are saying, I don't give a shit about the rules changing. These are the rules that there are right now. And I'm going to milk these rules for what they are. And I'm going to back people who are playing this game well. And so I'm interested in the short term, short term, short term, because then I can take that money and make more and make more and make more. So I'm not interested in this yeah, that's blah, it. blah. It's
1: interesting. I've had a conversation with a, a hotelier in the city who had a very interesting perspective. But what, I suppose it opened my eyes to that attitude. And his reaction was, it's too late. Yeah. It's too late. We're just focusing on making yeah. as best of this as we can and plan for the downside. And therefore, why go through all this effort? Because it's only going to sort of create, uh, there'll be less profit in the short term and the world, it is what it is. So we have to plan for that. So if that's the attitude and if that's what the, the, the separation is that's actually happening, I don't know what we, can, we well, can do to address it in terms of...
0: I don't know. I think the big the big banks can put even more pressure on companies and they they can and should put pressure on individual companies. You know, a lot of the investment activity is in index funds. So everything's kind of, you know, mashed up together. But you can certainly ask any company for its carbon footprint. You can ask them for their record on anything you want. And if you're as powerful as Larry Fink, you can ask a lot of questions of a lot of people. And I would like to see him asking some of those more specific questions. But I think it comes, this is where it comes back to the individual uh, level. One of the things that I think we've done in business that has not served us is we have isolated the way that we think about business from the way that we behave as humans. If I ask anybody listening to this podcast, the vast majority of people on this podcast have got children. And from the moment that your baby is born, You do not look in that child's eyes and think, I know what the three KPIs are that this kid's going to hit when he gets to be 21. You know, I know top line, bottom line and return on investment. No, obviously you look in that baby's eyes and you think, I want him or her to be happy and healthy and I'll make up the KPIs as I go along. And from the moment that you start parenting, the dance between short-term and long-term is always with you. Should I force her to brush her teeth today or should I let her get away with it because she looks so tired? Should I make him study for his exams or should I let him go and play? Should I push for this kid to you know, do some some test to get into some fancy school or should I let her go to the school with her friends down the road so that she can carry on playing volleyball because she likes it? And parenting is an imperfect science or art. It's a, it's a thing we do the best we can. And we juggle the short-term, long-term all the time. Somehow, it's a natural human thing. It's what we do. It's what we are as humans. Somehow, when it comes to business and other pursuits, we carve it up into neat little silos and we isolate ourselves from ourselves, mostly because we don't like ambiguity, mostly because we don't like not knowing what we're doing. And so we like to stay in the land of apparently known, apparently clear, apparently controllable, None of it's controllable, by the way. We all know this to be true, right? But we delude ourselves into believing it's controllable. I think when I look at the people who are getting it or who are moving with and, and who are exploring the new world, because none of us know what's going to happen. None of us. We're all doing the best we can. They're the ones who are the most connected with their humanity. Mm-hmm. They're the ones most willing to be wrong. They're the ones most willing to learn. They're the ones most willing to be influenced by people. You know, I was listening to um, I was listening to Tim Ferriss interviewing Esther Perel the other day, and I'm sure we all know Esther Perel and Tim Ferriss. And I think, and, and Tim had uh, chosen Seth Godin and Esther Perel as his guests of the decade or whatever. And she asked four questions that I thought were really, really interesting. And forgive me if you already know them, but the first was, What story do you tell yourself that no longer serves you? Second question was, when was the last time you changed your mind? Third question was, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And fourth question, a slight spin on your earlier question is, were you raised for autonomy or loyalty? The thing that I thought was the most interesting really was the second, which was when was the last time you changed your mind? And it was personally a huge aha for me because it made me realize that one of the reasons that I don't listen sometimes is because I'm not willing to change my mind. And so as this person comes toward me with a line of thinking that I have already decided I have a point of view on, I shut my ears and effectively I shut my heart. But if I'm willing to change my mind, I'm willing to be influenced, to be impacted, to be open to this person. Obviously, my, the quality of my listening improves. But the same is true when we embark on a venture, None of us know how to solve the challenges of the world. None of us. We have points of view. We have a better chance of being successful if we are open to learning and growing as we move through the journey. Now, that investor that you talk to isn't interested in changing his or her mind, I imagine. That is his point of view. I imagine it's a his. Yeah. Yeah. Totally.
1: Yeah. And for the, the age you would expect him to be. Mm. It's interesting as you talk about Esther Perl, and yeah, it's a, good, it's a great interview. We interviewed a uh, reformed neo Nazi white supremacist, Arnold Michaelis. He had a great um, comment about how he approaches his life. He said, The one thing I embrace is and reject, well, what I would reject is certainty and I embrace uncertainty. said, Because whenever I'm certain of something, I become suspicious of myself because certainty has got me into so much trouble. And he said, so that's his course correction approach. And I think it's, it's great. And it's also another guest we had, I think it was with um, Beth Comstock, also talked about living with ambiguity. And it's something that people who are brought up in a, the, the old traditional world, it's something that we reject. And, it's, it's, to go, and to go back to asking about why I ask about upbringing, I was brought up in a world of change constantly perpetual change of moving home uh, new schools new cities new countries change is normality to me and i'm always fascinated about people how people approach the world and are approach disruption and uncertainty and ambiguity and change. And if it's affected by their upbringing or if it's affected by their schooling or if it's affected by the influence of parents or mentors or, or peers. Because I think that's the thing. We have the people that are going to drive us forward in this world of ambiguity and uncertainty are the ones that have a ferocity and a, and a fearlessness to confront the ever accelerating changes that are coming our way and to be able to sort of, as Bruce Lee said, be like water.
0: Yes, which is why I'm kind of I noticed myself reacting to your use of the word fearless and ferocious mm. or ferocity because that's not how I see it. Mm. Okay, um, I see it as there's a there's a love to it.
1: Ah, okay, right. So that's the that's the word. Okay, so now I can get back to my questions. I don't think I've asked more than one of the questions. <laughs> we we might we might have to get a bottle of wine, some of your whiskey in here, Daniel, and do this on a Friday afternoon. But um. You have this lovely term you use, which is a dance. And in your TED talk, you talked about the dance between power and love. And I've heard you talk about dances of other dances as well. Can you maybe just unpack that and explain it to people, this concept of dance, and particularly around the the relationship between love and power?
0: Oh, yes. So the dance of love and power really comes from the Martin Luther King quote, which is um, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. But my I have a quote by Ram Das on my desk that says, When I don't know who I am, I serve you. When I know who I am, I am you. We're all just walking each other home. And I really do believe that humans are, we're an extraordinary sort of soup of Universal extraordinariness and interdependence. <laughs> to go back to
1: the Declaration of well, Interdependence of the B Corp. Makes well, actually, sound-
0: we're not even interdependent because, at some level, we're one, right? Uh-huh. But but as we become humans, of course, if we kind of get a little bit less philosophical, I said I wasn't philosophical, and now look at me. But um, as we become as we become human, we start to separate, right? And we and we then have separate identities, separate personalities, and we and we see ourselves as separate. But as we hold different realities. There very rarely is there a single truth. <laughs> There's always a kind of a, a mix of different things that we're holding for ourselves. So power and love is one of them. I talk about the dance between declaration and delivery, which is another dance because you can't like tell everybody you're going to do everything before you've done anything and you can't just do everything before you tell everyone, but th- it's a dance. The reason I like the phrase dance is because it has a spaciousness. It has a, uh, fluidity. A, a fluidity and it also has the sense that there is some underlying music here that sometimes we don't understand. And I really do believe that to be true. You know, you, you talk about serendipity and you talk about things that we can't explain. And I think the more open we are to allowing things that we can't explain into the frame, the more extraordinary the results will be, the more extraordinary the solutions will be, the more extraordinary the output will be. So I like the word dance a lot. (laughs) I also like to dance.
1: (laughs) Um, Your school had a motto, which I'm going to destroy if I try and do it in Latin, but it's to thine own self be true, which is a quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet um, where Polonius said, this above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night, the day, thus canst not then be false to any man farewell, my blessing season, this is thee. Now that, seems to, if you deconstruct that, those amazing words of wisdom that came from sort of Shakespeare, it was about wisdom passed on to, I think, his his son, which was on to live a good life, a good balanced life. And that seems to reflect and resonate the life that that you've led, because you've gone, I mean, in terms of that, talking about balance, you've, in the arc of your life, you've had that early part where you said it was for you, and now you're doing it for the many, for the world. Is it fair to say that your life has been a dance of power
0: and love? Hmm. Wow. Or is that getting too philosophical? No, I like it. I mean, I, I hope it has. It, it, is, it certainly feels like it is today. And I, I think Anand Giridharadas or Giridharadas has made me think a lot because he has been very critical of people like me who have kind of spent big parts of their lives just doing their own thing and then deciding later on when they've kind of got time and space and money to kind of be a little bit more generous of spirit. And I think he's, uh, and I, I completely understand his point. And I also think in a way that that's the way of the world, that um, when we're young and feisty and fighty, and we're trying to prove ourselves, there's a role for that. And it's, con- you know, it's coincides with biology and the other things we're doing in the world. As we get older and wiser, and by the way, I met somebody this morning who told me that he only invests in women over 50, period. Um, and I've... Brilliant. I thought it was genius. And I, I didn't even have to ask him why. But um as we get older and wiser, we we have a different role in the world, right? Where we need to have a, a broader perspective. I think the question that's still on my mind though is how do I make systems change at this level? Because we're talking about, uh, I've been talking about, you know, leadership within an organization. I've been talking about being pragmatic about the way you deal with your investors. But there is no doubt that the system as it works today is not working. It is broken and needs to be fixed, which is why I think that, and I quote, uh, for example, cigarette smoking. If you take the fact that just, I don't know, 15 years ago, people in this room would have been smoking cigarettes. I wouldn't have been. You wouldn't have been, but people would have been. That's kind of how it was. And now the idea of people smoking cigarettes in a room like this is completely ludicrous. If you look at what happened to make that happen, it was a combination of legislation and price and information and social pressure. And so I do think you need all of those things in the new game, which is why legislative pressure to change the way that corporations operate is really important, as is information about the impact of unfettered, uh, uncontrolled capitalism, as is social movements that get together to put pressure and then to work together to make a better way. All of those things are needed. What I'm very happy to see, and, and again, I can, I'm come. i going to come back to my point about the sustainable development goals, because we just launched a, a product, United the Nations. Tool, the tool, I saw It's The it's, tool. Brilliant. it's magnificent.
1: I've passed that on to two businesses yeah. already that are going through systems change in their business. The SDG Action got, Navigator, yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Fantastic. It's a beautiful tool that's been developed by B-Lab and the United Nations Global Compact. And it is exactly what you need to measure how your business is doing against the sustainable development goals. And it's getting huge take up in Europe, not so much in the US, as we said. But I think, I mean, that my dream is that, you know, I don't know when, 10, 20 years, Mm -hmm. that your average corporate would have an audit committee with an entire process, as they do today, of financial metrics, an entire organization that makes sure that financial metrics are being adhered to and external auditors. And there would be some sort of CSG, ESG, CSR subcommittee of of a board that would have exactly the same infrastructure inside the company and the same kind of external audit so that anybody investing in a company would be able to see their financial results, would be able to see their environmental record and would be able to see their social record clearly with a set of metrics that is completely agreed, just as Sarblains-Oxley or, or GARP or whatever the other rules are for, for financial metrics. That's ha- that has to be where we're going. And how do we get there? We're going to get there in either in like baby steps, like we're going right now, or some huge crisis will cause yeah. us to radically which, which could
1: We might well be in the midst of that crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, had a, I was around for the famous pa- packaging-free stew, the delightful... Josh, a packaging-free stew of uh, Josh Aspotic, and in the midst of the discussion, it was just when the, the virus COVID nineteen was breaking. I said, "You know, maybe this is the the wrinkle in the matrix we need to actually course correct." Because what's it going to do? You know, this isn't this isn't the Ebola dumb virus. This is a smart virus. It instills in us fear, uncertainty, and terror about wherever we go. I went to the cinema last night, and it was empty. Uh, you well, know, Sunday but- night no, no, battery parking on a Sunday night is usually pretty busy. But my point to him was, if people stop flying, if people stop spending, if people stop consuming as much, yes, there might be a a, a course correction in the markets to, to a catastrophic degree in terms of the impact on the economy. But what it might do is create some form of acceleration of the changes we need. So it might be for the I mean, there's that great term, life happens for us, not to us. Maybe this is nature in the Baker greater scheme of things. Again, getting very philosophical, maybe push us in the direction we need to go. So I'm just very conscious of time. I would love to get to some of the other questions. I want the, the standard questions. We always talk about serendipity and you mentioned it. How has serendipity played a part in your journey, in your life and what chance encounters have occurred that might have changed that direction?
0: You know, the whole thing feels serendipitous to me. I can't think of anything that is sort of specific because it's all just a magnificent, magical surprise, really. I was absolutely stunned. Last night I was walking in Central Park and, you know, a young woman got off a bicycle and walked towards me. And this kid used to live in my compound in Shanghai in 2012, you know. Oh. Like what's, she lives in Montreal. She, I mean, how's that, how is that? possible. I was Among like, seven you know, and a half po- billion and people. And she didn't even recognize me. She recognized my dog because she loves my dog. And, you know, it's like, what are the chances? So the world is just like that. And I think the thing that's um, interesting to me is I used to, laughably enough, think that I controlled something. <laughs> 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 I don't control anything. Um, it's just, a, I think humans do a lot better when we co-create with the universe rather than try and impose our will on it or or when we just let it do its thing. There's, again, a dance between us and the the way that the universe unfolds. And so there's all sorts of magical miracles, including everything from the fact that we're stuck on the ground right now because of gravity and the fact that the sun came up and we're breathing. I mean, there's all sorts of magic in this world. And there is a a sort of a divine intelligence, in my view, that we are able to collaborate with. And having intentions and putting in work where appropriate and at the same time letting it go and allowing it to be when appropriate is the joy of becoming human, the joy of having a successful, happy life. And sometimes we, you know, it works, sometimes it doesn't work. It's all part of, part of the, the joy that is, that is this world. So I think serendipity is just respecting the miracle of it all. And, you know, I used to, I used to love goals just be really clear on goals. These days, I just really like miracles, which are, you know, goals with attitude, if you like. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're goals that are much bigger than anything I could think of. And, and I think that if we just allowed it, I, I'll use another metaphor. This one comes from, I think, Lisa Rankin, who's another person that I follow on social media. I follow so many people on social media, and then I sort of I I steal from them and I can never remember who exactly I stole from, right? But she talks about the moment of conception being obviously the meeting of a sperm that swum like crazy to get there and fought a bunch of other little sperms and an egg that was waiting receptively for for this sper- we put a whole hell of a lot more attention attention on that spermy energy than we do on eggy energy and i'm not talking this is not mm. a gender question but you know the the question for all of us is when to be eggy and when to be spermy mm-hmm. because you need That's both right. to be creative, <laughs> you know
1: That's and right. That's and gonna be a good one for our social media
0: yeah exactly yeah. and and we need them both and they're both equally valuable and sometimes we don't pay nearly as much attention to the Eggies. But it is interesting that, that the you're,
1: spermies. I mean, a lot of the things you've talked about, the the dance between power and love, the dance between, what was it? The declaration and delivery. And delivery between spermie and Eggie. It's a binary, it's yin and yang, it's and a it. flow. And I suppose there is a, it's funny when you were talking about the people that are in that top tier of management that don't want change. The people that are the investors are just going, no, we're keeping the way it is. It's about resistance. And resistance is antithesis, anathema to progress. And we are in a constant state of progress, whether it feels good or bad. And if you go with the flow, if you don't resist and you move forward with embracing ambiguity, not trying to enforce your will, believing that your will, you even have free will, let's face it. We just have to trust in the uncertainty of what life is and move forward with curiosity. And I, I will use the word fearlessness because it's just ingrained in me and my militaristic upbringing in a ferocious sort of way. I think that is, if more of us just went forward and trusted in our intuition and trust in others, then I think we would probably find ourselves in a position where we heal ourselves and heal the the planet, hopefully. Now, that might not mean having mass migration. It might not mean having some form of existential crisis that Yuval Noah Harari talked about at Davos. But the planet will survive, for sure. And a certain, probably, amount of us, the species will survive, but maybe in a very
0: different iteration than we are today. And the dance will continue. Yes. And interesting that you talk about Yuval Harari, who's a fascinating character. And, you know, I thought his point in Homedes about us wanting to conquer death itself is just, you know, mind-blowing. And he himself is... Kind of on another planet, right? He's not—he's not a normal guy like yeah. us, right? He's, he's, he see if you if you read interviews with him, you think, wow, that's uh, you know, he's he has a role in our world that's very special, just like Greta Thunberg mm-hmm. does. You know, there are many people who are able to see things that we aren't able to see. Uh, you know, we're, I feel like we're like we're just sort of humans scrabbling around trying to make a living, mm-hmm. and then there are these few other people up there who really see stuff, right? So they're agitators for
1: change, and that they're inspiring others absolutely. to take action
0: absolutely
1: at, at a scale that needs to happen yeah. so they both have their roles to play yes talk to me about curiosity and the role it's played in your life and is it something how do you cultivate it
0: so curiosity is um, the antidote to any pain there is in my view anytime I'm uncomfortable or unhappy or angry I think what can I get curious about here mm-hmm. because then things shift and sometimes it's curious about my own reaction but much more it's much more often it's curiosity about the thing that is allegedly um, distressing me if you think about the fact that humans what it is to be human is for us to think and for us to think means that we have a lot of thoughts that are really interesting and useful and we have a whole bunch of thoughts that are really useless and not interesting at all and some of them occupy our minds way more than they need to And curiosity is the gateway to joy, happiness, learning, discovery. So for me, it's becoming now, and it's obviously I get caught up like everybody else. But um, whenever I am in pain of any kind, that's sort of become my go-to question is what can I get curious about?
1: And how do you satisfy that curiosity?
0: Just by leaning into other people, Mm. you know, leaning into the subject, just being fascinated by it. And I think it, it's it's connected to the very early comments we were making about needing to know what you're doing before you move. I mean, if we again, if we look at how little kids operate, they don't wait until they've worked stuff out before they start walking, right? They s- try and take a step, they fall over, they try and take another step, they fall over. And mainly they're trying to walk because they want a cookie. They're not trying to walk because they want to walk. They're trying to walk because they want something. And that's how humans are too, right? We're trying to do something. And so we start getting curious about, it. I mean, we, we, we want to work out how to get to that thing. And I mean, I, we all know this story, right? When, whenever anything happens with our mobile phones or our computers, you're too young, but in my age group, I want to know what's wrong with it before I do anything. And so generally these days I ask the youngest person that I can find, can you, I don't know, this thing's not working. And what do they do? They pick it up. They have no clue either, but they start jabbing away because they're curious and they're trying to work it out. And they try this, they try that, they try the other thing. They realize they can't break it and ultimately they work it out. And I think that that spirit of working it out, you know, curiosity is even too big a word. It's just like being human, like stabbing away at stuff until, you've, until something becomes clear. And, and that uh, spirit which is just so abundant in kids all the time, is the sort of, it's like the salt of, of being human. It goes on everything, makes everything a little bit better, you know. Uh, before we get to the quick of our questions, one
1: question, education. It's, um, we believe it's really important. What would you do if you were given the keys to the mayor's office to of the White House to impact educational change to have a positive impact on uh, the generation of young people growing up now?
0: Um, There're a bunch of things that I would practical are, things, not yeah, yeah, you know, practical things. Yeah, <laughs> I would first of all get multi generational um, engagement in education. So I would get uh, a bunch of uh, seniors, if you like people over seventy, and I'd get them to spend time with uh, with with the education system. I think that the education system it doesn't make any sense to have kind of education then work then leisure. I mean. There are people who are 80 years old who have so much to offer. And so I think that actually joining up older people, younger people, super important. Second, most important thing that I would do is I would um, shift the environment of people in educational systems. So, for example, in New York City, I take every single one of those kids and I would put them in a semester in West Virginia or a semester in Alabama or a semester in Costa Rica, somewhere out of there current environment because there's nothing that shifts your perspective like shifting your perspective and understanding that the world isn't the way that you are, that that's just your world right now. So that's the second thing that I would do. And the third thing is I would be very insistent on sport and activity because I think that sport and activity is a huge builder of team building and interconnection. And it's sort of become less interesting for many people and people have become too specialized too early in sport so
1: everybody's in sport and also um a great way of countering the damaging effect of mental health issues so i think we have to be cognizant of that as well great answers um quick for questions
0: what principles do you stand by principles Mm -hmm. i don't know Do I have principles? Am I supposed to have principles? I suppose I am. I don't have anything sophisticated to say. You lift your values. Well, I don't even know about values anymore. I do what occurs to me to do, and mostly I'm a decent person. But, you know, I think the only thing that really, really, really matters is listening. I really do think that. If I can genuinely listen to other human beings, everything seems to run differently for me.
1: Well, we're living in a world that seems to be constantly on transmit and very few people on opposite sides of, let's say, the political divide are listening to each other.
0: And again, what I notice is that when I'm not listening, it's because I'm afraid of the impact of this human on me. And then that's another gateway to my own, my own, you know, level of, decency if you like or or civility but you know if you ask me this question in a week I'll give you a different answer and I think that's important too because I think I think uh, you know often we hold on to principles and values like a sort of a mace no it goes back
1: to what Arno was saying about certainty we shouldn't be certain we have to live in a fluid world what hard choices have you made but were tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision on reflection
0: I think not having children was kind of It wasn't one of those like, well, I think I won't have children, but it just didn't happen. And in retrospect, I'm super happy because I think my relationship with other people's kids is very different than it would have been if I had been a parent myself. I seem to use parenting metaphors almost all the time, even though I'm not one. And that's cool too. So I think that that's been an important decision. And I think uh, probably the biggest single impact on my life is my beautiful little dog that I um that I adopted when I lived in China his name is Stir Fry it was a crazy thing to do cuz I was traveling all the time but and my husband was like you hey, we can have that dog i love that dog he's changed my life so it's um not having kids and having the most magnificent dog on the planet that's about as deep as i'm going to get mark <laughs>
1: Fine. <laughs> we, we might have to have a little battle over little dogs. So, but Ringo's not here today.
0: Well, if you let Ringo go to Mexico for three months, you're not my kind of dog <laughs> guy. I gotta no, tell no, you. No,
1: Oh, come on, come on, come on! I did not let. Well, I, did. I didn't. What you just said.
0: This is deep I walked into that one, didn't I?
1: <laughs> right. Moving on.
0: Yeah. What's, right.
1: Yeah, right. Well, <laughs>
0: what is the one problem worth solving? The one problem worth solving is. How can we be less afraid? How can we be less afraid of our own experience? That's lovely. Yeah. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Well, Joshua Spodek certainly made me reevaluate the way I behave in a bunch of, where, um, a bunch of ways. I certainly think my boss at Danone, Emmanuel Faber, um, has made me question uh, pretty much everything about myself. Many people have, but those are the two that jump to my mind.
1: Yeah. What question that no one asks you that you wish they would?
0: Oh, I wish they asked I wish people would ask me how I think humans work. Cuz I have a new theory about how I think humans work and no one ever asks me cuz it's such a really big question. <laughs> it's a big answer. Uh no, I kind of gave it through this talk really, which is I think that um you know humans are at you know at some level all one and we have this ability to think and we can't control our thoughts but we can certainly notice what we pay attention to. And if we could just not be afraid of the series of random thoughts that drift on through our minds, and if we could choose at the right time to spend our attention on thoughts that are productive and powerful, our lives would be different. And the more that I'm in that conversation, the more powerful and the more enjoyable my life's been. So that's kind of the subject that I'm hot on at the moment. Okay.
1: If you could return to one night, one day in history, where, when, and to see who?
0: If I could return to one night in history, Mm -hmm. which night would it be? Or day,
1: history, anywhere to see is there anything you would go? Nah. No, okay.
0: Not interested. Uh, I'm going to get to our,
1: because I know that the timing on this, I'm going to get to the main last three questions. Um, impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate to study that um, is being told that their grand ambition or goal, not that you've necessarily focused on goals, um, that forget it, it's impossible, give up?
0: I would um, tell them to find the smallest possible step that they can make in that direction. I think one of the reasons why people um, get stopped is they have really big goals that are really far away and they don't think about the bit from here to there. And often, and this is actually Seth Godin uh, advice too, the smaller the step, the better. The single customer that you can meet their needs, the better. The one step. So that's what I'd say.
1: The wisdom of Seth Godin, I agree. What book would you like us to offer listeners that submit best comments in the comment section?
0: I think The Geography of Thought is one of the most powerful books I've ever read or The Culture Map. Both of them are books about the way different cultures think. One is by Aaron Meyer and the other is by a guy called Robin something or the other, which will come to me. I'll tell you afterwards because I think understanding multicultural perspectives is one of the most powerful things that you can do. And I think I would probably offer Sapiens as well because I think Sapiens is a super powerful book.
1: Okay. Who should we interview
0: next? Well, Anand Gildaras since we've mentioned him about four times if you haven't yet. I haven't I haven't got a connection to him. Mm-hmm. So. Well, we could try that. Yeah, um. Try that. Yeah. yeah, I think I think he would be I think he would be great. Yeah. Okay, just finally we wrap up with acknowledging
1: you. So there's so much I could acknowledge and thank you for, but mainly what comes across is just a relentless pursuit of positive purpose and impact a, mind, a redefining approach to humanity and our mindset and our reason for being your clarity of thought your candor and really all I'd say is keep on dancing
0: <laughs> thank you it's been, a, it's been a joy thank you so much well, well, thank I appreciate you, it thank you very much
1: If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina Michele and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative and seek out serendipity. See you next time.